Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. My name is Crystal, and I am the host of Stories from Palestine podcast and also a licensed tour guide by the Palestinian Ministry of Tourism. Together with my colleague Salim, we are organizing three 10-day programs this year to discover Palestine. There is still space in the upcoming program mid-March and also in June and October. We travel around the West Bank, Jerusalem and Jaffa with small groups, maximum 10 people. We provide historical background, we introduce you to the Palestinian heritage, and we make sure that you get to meet a lot of locals. We stay in family-run hotels and we also spend two nights with Palestinian families. We do some short hikes, easy hikes, and during the October program, you can also join a day of olive harvesting. If you are interested, then check out our website for more information. I will ask Roberto if he can add a link to the show notes of the podcast, but you can also write it down. It is storiesfrompalestine.info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is John Munayer. John is a researcher, writer, theologian, and interreligious facilitator from Jerusalem. He's very much interested in the question related to Palestinian Christian theology, and is focusing on Palestinian Christian community in the Holy Land, and as I already mentioned, in interreligious dialogue. But John is also the co-editor of the Journal of Palestinian Christianity, a new journal that will be published in the coming months and through which we hope 
to get more knowledge and information about this particular branch of Christianity, not just in Jerusalem, but all throughout Palestine. But before we delve into all of this, first thing first, John, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. John, the first question I want to ask is, um, you're a Jerusalemite, so what is your Jerusalem? What, what is your connection with the city? What is your experience of the city? So, indeed, yes, I was uh, born and raised in Jerusalem, but uh, neither of my parents are actually from the city. So uh, my father is uh, Palestinian. He comes from the city of Elid. And my mother is English, who comes from a town uh, in the north of England. Uh, but for me, Jerusalem, is, it's where I, I grew up. And it's a beautiful city. It's, it's, it has a lot of richness to it. Uh, but at the same time, it's the center uh, of, of, of also conflict. And uh, I often say that Jerusalem is a heavy city. When you, when you come into Jerusalem, you feel the weight of some of the tensions uh, and the conflicts as well. So on one hand, I see this huge potential that the city has to offer. But on the other hand, I see also the negative sides uh, of, of the conflicts here. I want to ask you something about, uh, you know, being a Christian in Jerusalem. Um, I know this may be a personal question, but I think it's it's very interesting and also important in understanding the, the, the setting of the city. What does that mean to be, uh, you know, a Palestinian Christian in Jerusalem in the 21st century? Being Palestinian Christian for me is you can't really separate these two identities. Uh, they, they come together, right? Uh, Christianity was in many ways born here. Uh, and therefore, I feel uh, very connected to, to, to my faith, to my religion, to my community, to my traditions. So in many ways, it's a privilege to, to have been uh, born here and, and raised here. Um, and again, each, each, each identity sort of builds on, uh, on the other. Um, but we also face a lot of challenges as a, a, a minority, um, whether that be whatever part of, of Jerusalem. Uh, we will be also a, a minority, and we therefore face many, many challenges in Jerusalem. Uh, and I also feel that it, I'm connected to many of the, the holy sites. Uh, I'm very connected to the Church of Resurrection, as we, we call it in Arabic, not the Church of Holy Sepulchre. Um, this is a, a church that I feel almost responsible for, um, and I feel a very unique uh, responsibility taking care of it and, and visiting it um, on almost a monthly basis. Actually, because you said that, I, I'm really curious about something. I, I've been in Jerusalem many times. I lived in the city. But, you know, in the end, I'm not a Jerusalemite. So my experience of, uh, for instance, holy places is very similar to uh, pilgrims who just stay maybe for a day or two. That is to visit a place. Maybe I had you know, the privilege to stay longer and uh, getting to know more and better these places. But you have a different perspective. You actually, as you just said, you, you kind of like have a different kind of attachment. And so I was curious if you can share a little bit more about it. You know, for someone from Jerusalem, being in Jerusalem, and how does this connection work? I mean, how, even at a personal level, like in terms of feelings? Yeah, so 
I mean, as when I was a, a child and adolescent, when you're growing up, you don't actually appreciate uh, many of these sites. You know, these are just sites that your your parents or relatives force you to go to. Um, but as you, you grow older, you you understand the significance of, of these uh, locations. And and my family um, in, in Lid, they actually helped build one the Church of Saint George, where according to tradition, his uh, the the bones of the saint are buried underneath so from an early age sort of you get these stories passed down to you and therefore almost this connection and responsibility to that specific church because of the family connection but then also to the other churches as well Um, so it's not just a a a church I, i come and will visit and sort of have a very spiritual moment and then leave uh, at times you can almost treat it like um you know almost also casually uh, sort of a place you can hang around and, and connect to um, that is not always necess- necessarily connected to a form of pilgrimage. I'm interested in something, again, in your perspective. Uh, I would say the largest majority of people visiting Jerusalem, particularly Christians, uh, they may have, uh, in different ways, but claims over these holy sites, you know, in a sense that uh, it doesn't matter where they come from around the world, but they feel attached which is, you know, in a way understandable because it's about faith, but sometimes it's also a real claim of ownership. And I was wondering from a Palestinian Christian perspective, how do local Christians feel about uh, other people coming from all around the world and claiming those very places? These churches are indeed uh, connected not just to Palestinian Christians, but to Christians all around the world, regardless to to what church they, they, they come from. But at the same time, this can also be a uh, a source of conflict, specifically when groups of Christians from abroad come and and claim it, um, almost to for, for for the purpose of controlling it, and then you might have these types of uh, of conflicts and tensions between usually the the laity, the Palestinian Christians, and oftentimes a lot of clergy who represent big churches, and and uh, again are focusing perhaps on on rituals and maintaining the, the the church itself as opposed to the community that are built around these locations. So this is a, a, a big uh, source of conflict, whether you focus on the building itself, on the on the on these ancient stones, or do you focus on also the living stones? Can we find sort of a, a way to, to uh, you know, find a, a holistic approach to these locations? I'm curious about something, um, you know, obviously from the, let's say, early 19th century onwards, more and more, particularly white Anglo-Saxon men began to roam around Palestine and they basically build up what now we call uh, Bible, biblical archaeology. And uh, many also came up with alternative uh, Christian uh, holy places because they they did. They basically didn't like necessarily the traditional holy places. They didn't see them as fitting, uh, you know, their understanding of, of the scriptures. And I was wondering again, from your own perspective as a Christian Palestinian and Jerusalemite, how do you see this attempt to relocate uh, uh, Christian holy places? 
Indeed, I mean, this is delving also into to, to politics in the sense of who has rights to which holy site and which which church. And in Jerusalem, perhaps with the Church of Resurrection, it's the most uh, sort of vivid um, with with the garden tomb being sort of the Protestant alternative because they have no rights to, to the church. Um, and personally, I, I don't have an issue with that, uh, with certain white Protestant Christian males, of course, a sort of... Uh, creating their own uh, uh, narrative if this is a way for them to connect to 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 their faith and, and religion fine but of course it doesn't negate the uh, long history of, and tradition of the the church of resurrection and of course it's uh, archaeological uh, importance as well um, my only issue is when the these locations can be used then sort of for lots of protestant pilgrims um, as as uh, as an alternative to the church, or even associating it um, with a form of Christian Zionism, which the Garden Tomb at least uh, is associated with uh, often. But perhaps that is something we can delve into a bit later. Absolutely, on. I want to talk about Christian Zionism because this is a very relevant phenomenon, uh, particularly given the uh, current political times that we, we are living in. I mean. Christian Zionism has been around for quite some time, but I think now it's becoming more and more relevant to a, a political uh, discourse. But I want to ask you something before we delve into some uh, theological issues related to uh, uh, Christianity in Palestine. And uh, given that the majority of the listeners of the podcast are from America, they may not necessarily be entirely familiar with the uh, uh, you know, sort of a Christian presence in Jerusalem and in Palestine. So I was wondering if you can just give us a sense of who are Christian Palestinians and, you know, how they are divided, essentially. Yes. So when we speak about Palestinian Christians, we speak about the indigenous population here who also happens to be Christian. So just as you have Palestinian Muslims, you will also have Palestinian Christians. Now, Palestinian Christians have been living in the land for since uh, the beginning of the Jesus movement uh, and, and the first church. That is how many Palestinian Christians would, would define sort of their church being the oldest church, right? Um, and we're speaking about, if we look at all historical Palestine, we're looking at between 160 to 180,000 people. In Jerusalem, we're maybe speaking about 12,000 with another uh, 3,000 uh, being uh, expat sort of uh, Christians or basically um, missionaries or representatives of different churches who come for a year or two and then leave um, different different orders uh, within the different churches that are, are maintaining some uh, and, and preserving some of the holy sites. So it's a very small community, even though in, in the 1900s, Jerusalem was about 20% Christian in terms of its population. Uh, but now, of course, it's it's almost nothing in Jerusalem. So this is what we what I mean by Palestinian Christian. It's the indigenous population who also identifies as Christian, and of course expresses its religion and faith in a variety of ways, um, and also belongs to different churches and denominations. So Palestinian Christians tend to usually come from either a Greek Catholic uh, background or a Greek Orthodox background. Uh, most of the Greek Catholics uh, in historical Palestine are in the north and uh, sort of in the center and south tend to be more Greek Orthodox. So this, uh, of course, there's also Latin uh, Roman Catholics and also different Protestant denominations as well. 
I'm just curious if you can tell us a little bit more, if you can speak about uh, some of the uh, perhaps theological or sort of differences between these groups. You know, you, you mentioned the Greek uh, uh, Catholics, which we may also call Melkites, uh, obviously the Greek Orthodox, uh, the Latins. And then, of course, we also have the Copts, the Ethiopian. These are smaller communities. But, uh, but I think it would be, uh, you know, fascinating for listeners just to get a sense also you know, what may be the, the, the differences in terms of beliefs and also theological understanding of, of the figure of uh, uh, Jesus? Sure. So I would say in a general sense, if if we look at uh, Palestine as a whole, in a very general sense, you could say that every, every theology that was developed in this area is Palestinian theology, right? But if I, I look at it in a more specific sense, uh, in, in its relation to the national uh, movement and the national identity of Palestinians, then we're focusing on a much more uh, sort of specific and niche within Palestinian theology. And this theology arises from mostly the conflict between uh, the Zionist movement and Palestinians. So in its very early stages, you have many uh, Palestinian Christians who are asking them very, asking themselves a lot of questions about the Zionist movement, um, a lot of Western Christians who are supporting the Zionist movement, and then obviously after the Nakba, the catastrophe, ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. So how do I, as a Pal Palestinian Christian, understand what is happening to me in my context? How should I respond in light of my faith and, and my religion and my my heritage and values to the displacement of my people. And this is where Palestinian theology begins to develop. So we often call Palestinian theology, Palestinian contextual theology, right? The, the context both informs the theology, it helps you interpret uh, uh, your faith, uh, but also the faith has meaning for your context. It's supposed to be relevant for the different challenges you face and as Palestinians living under occupation or being displaced or Palestinians who live now within the state of Israel, new questions arise. How am I supposed to act, uh, think, speak of God in this new context? And of course, then it moves also to liberation theology, um, which focuses on the liberation of all people uh, from oppression, regardless to whether that be spiritual oppression or also political economic oppression. I'm curious about something. I mean, I'm very much aware of the differences between, for instance, the Greek Orthodox and the Catholic Church, whether it's a Greek-speaking or, or Latin. Uh, is there a sense of unity in terms of, like, uh, theological approach to Christianity in Palestine? I mean, you're talking about liberation theology, which is very much a Catholic concept that developed in Latin America, uh, very much criticized by some in the Catholic Church, but it looks like, at least to me, that actually in Palestine is still very much alive and perhaps creating um, some sort of rift between, you know, whether denominations or uh, and or Catholics in Palestine and Catholics in different countries. So there are many churches and therefore theologians and, and priests and, and clergy who try to um, 
understand and interpret scripture and understand God and Christ. And these differences between the churches you would find every anywhere, you know, whether you be a Malachite, a Greek Catholic in another location and a Greek Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, so on and so forth. But often these uh, differences tend to be more uh, concerning how you practice your faith and also questions of authority that go date, uh, you know, before any, any uh, conflict, uh, any conflict between Palestinians and uh, Zionists. But I would say that there is a, a sort of alliance, you could say, or almost mutual understanding between many Palestinian theologians and clergy from the different churches. So both from the Greek Catholic, the Greek Orthodox, Catholic, uh, Latin Catholic, and also uh, some of the Protestant churches when it comes to contextual and liberation theology. So when a, a priest tends to be Palestinian, also Palestinian issues tend to be on their agenda, right? How, how do I relate to my community? How do I understand myself, my, my family history? So there's also the Kairos document uh, that was written in 2009, where a collective of different theologians and clergy from different churches, including evangelical um, uh, backgrounds as well, come together and write this document, which can sum up contextual and liberation Palestinian theology. Um, so this is sort of one way that many theologians and clergy from the different churches sort of unite upon. But these are specific clergy and specific theologian who tend to be Palestinian. This is not always the agenda of many of the theologian and clergy who are not Palestinian. We didn't mention one church, which is um, uh, quite important in Jerusalem, uh, which is the Armenian church, for instance. And I was wondering if you have also uh, something to say about the, their position, for instance, vis-a-vis, you know, theology, but also, you know, their position vis-a-vis, you know, the other Christian denomination. Yeah, the, the Armenian church, it's, it's a tricky situation because also the Armenian church are a very small church here uh, in the Holy Land. Um, and again, all of these churches have many different uh, parties to, to please or displease. Uh, and therefore, also the amongst the Armenian population living here in historical Palestine, some tend to be often more leaning towards the Palestinian identity and national almost uh, liberation movement. But others also tend to sometimes connect much more to the Israeli uh, identity and uh, aspiration. And also it's the way the Armenian church does theology. I mean, I know I spoke a lot about um, Palestinian contextual and liberation theology that exists amongst the many different churches here in Palestine, but actually it was developed mostly amongst the Protestant churches, less so um, within the Orthodox church, for instance, uh, but where it was really uh, written and systematized was mostly in the Protestant church. So it's also the way different churches do theology and how they approach scripture, where some of the traditional churches tend to focus more on liturgy and and, and sacraments and so on and so forth. I'm curious about, uh, you know, your personal views. I mean, you're a theologian. Uh, can you give us a sense of the current debate? Uh, I mean, what is that churches are debating in Palestine in relation to theology? So there's many different debates that the churches have. 
Uh, I'll go with the sort of a very, uh, I mentioned it early on, but there's tensions between the laity and the clergy, right? Oftentimes the laity are very frustrated with the clergy in terms of the positions they take. Are they taking a strong enough position when it comes to injustices? So this leads many people to theological debates about authority and justice. And as Christians, are we, and if so, how are we supposed to confront injustices? Um, and whether authority in the church needs to change or shift. So the, this is sort of a first debate. Uh, another debate is simply trying to understand scripture, because a lot of uh, the Zionists around the world uh, are Christian, and they base their beliefs off the Bible. So a lot of Palestinian Christians are trying to understand scripture in light of many Christians justifying their oppression using the Bible. So this is another debate that you have within Palestinian uh, theology. The third one is, of course, the issue uh, of women that is uh, becoming more uh, and more, I think, uh, prominent. And actually, on the 22nd of this month, we will have the first Palestinian woman to be ordained ever uh, in the churches. She will be ordained in the Lutheran church. So it will be an interesting development. And another very contemporary debate is what sources and methods do we use for building our theology? Do we look at theologians sort of in the West and how they understand scripture and then relate it to our context? Or do we find alternative methods and sources that are much more indigenous for constructing our theology? I want to ask you two questions in one. I come from, uh, well, I have a mixed family, you know, Catholic background, Jewish background. And there's one thing I learned in my time that I spent uh, in Israel. Many Israeli, probably the largest majority, don't know much about Christianity. In fact, very little. And so I was wondering, what do you think should Israeli know about Christianity in the first place? But also what, uh, particularly the West, should know more about the same Christianity in Palestine. Yeah, it's a very interesting um, and complicated dynamic when it comes to the Israeli Jewish population and Christianity, uh, because many of these of the Jewish populations here in the land fled anti-Semitism promoted by the church and many Christians. And therefore, there's uh, at times quite a, a hostile attitude towards Christianity. Um, and it's seen as a religion that is constantly trying to uh, get Jews to, to become Christians, right? So uh, this is oftentimes a, um, a, a sort of a sensitive topic for Israeli Jews. They always think that Christians are there to uh, make them Christian, which in history isn't exactly wrong in some parts of the world and in some uh, specific periods. So this is sort of a first um, uh, sort of mis misunderstanding or misconception of Christianity when discussing uh, Christianity with a lot of Israeli Jews. And they often have these deep-rooted and, and uh, traumas with Christianity. And also the average Israeli Jew sees, still sees himself or herself as a minority within the world of, of, of Christianity, right? The Jewish people are, are, are a very small population and they're a 
a minority amongst this huge Christian world, and now they're in the Middle East, and they're a minority amongst the Arab countries. This is how the average Israeli Jew would, would sort of approach uh, also Christianity. But it, the Christian here in the land would actually see himself or herself as a minority, right? Because we're less than 2%. So there's often this idea of uh, when a Jew and a, a Christian come together uh, in this specific context, they often come both with this identity of the minority and at times also the identity of the of the victim. And therefore there's um, can be a very uh, uh, complicated and at times problematic uh, conversations. When it comes to Western Christians, they often completely, you know, have no idea that there's Christians here in the Middle East, let alone in in, in Palestine. Um, so this is, you know, something that I constantly, I always meet a lot of Western Christians that have no idea that there's Palestinian Christians. They thought everyone was Muslim. And this is also to do with the way the media portrays uh, the conflict here and the population here. Um, and also, it, I think, also goes back to deep-rooted um, hostility towards Arabs and Muslims in Europe. But this is a, a, another conversation. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, Islamophobia is a topic for, for another day. Uh, I just want to take advantage of this discussion because I, uh, you know, we mentioned already a couple of times the question of Christian Zionism and the fact that it's a very relevant uh, uh, should we call it ideology? Because I, I mean, it's a doctrine, right? I mean, the the idea uh, of a second coming of Jesus, and you also mentioned the question of the scriptures that go uh, hand in hand with Christian Zionism. Um, personally, I f I believe that there's a misuse and a misinterpretation of the scriptures, but I know this is like a larger uh, debate about the scriptures and also about the theology 
surrounding the scripture. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, what is Christian Zionism, but I'm very much interested in the perspective of how Christian Palestinians understand and experience Christian Zionism in Palestine. So Christian Zionism, in, in a nutshell, is the, the, the theology that uh, the land, uh, the Holy Land belongs to the Jewish people and that they still have a unique covenant with God. And God obviously uh, promises um, you know, in, in, to Abraham that he would give him a land and make him a great nation. So a lot of Christian Zionists believe that this uh, promise still exists and that therefore, as a Christian, and they often quote Genesis 12, which says, which, where God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So a lot of Christian Zionists believe that if they bless the Jewish people and the state of Israel, they too will be blessed. Then they also connected to a lot of biblical prophecies of returning to the land, which many Christians who are not Christian Zionists interpret that in a very different way. But Christian Zionists would say the establishment of the state of Israel is the fulfillment of these prophecies, right? After the Holocaust, God is bringing back the people of Israel, the Jewish people, to the land. And this is one step closer to the second coming of Jesus. Uh, but if they also believe that beforehand there will be quite a lot of uh, conflict and war. Um, and then Christ will come at some point. And according to some interpretations of Christian Zionists, they believe that in the process of these wars that will happen within the Holy Land, Palestine, Israel, um, two-thirds of the Jews will die. So a lot of these Christians are promoting uh, Zionism and supporting Zionism, also knowing, or at least in their minds and theology, that there's going to be a big war and many people will die. Um, so I often say that Christian Zionism can, is, is often the most anti-Semitic theology. Um, because it's promoting this type of, of uh, events. So when a lot of Palestinian Christians meet these Christian Zionists who often come to the land, it creates a lot of conflict because a lot of Palestinian Christians will come to a, a Christian Zionist and say, but what about us, the Palestinian Christians? Why do you uh, support uh, the occupation, why do you support different forms of ethnic cleansing? Why do you support my discrimination? And at times, a lot of Christian Zionists would say, well, this is a bit of uh, sort of uh, unfortunate circumstances that need to take place in order for the second coming of Christ, right? So it creates a, a very... Um, you know, it's almost an identity crisis for many Palestinian Christians who, who meet these Christian Zionists because then they start questioning their own faith. Does my faith actually support this? Um, and, and then they, they have to ask themselves many questions. And this is also one of the reasons uh, Palestinian theology was developed is interacting with these Christian Zionists um, who are supporting all sorts of uh, very dangerous policies, I would say. I'm not a theologian. I'm just a regular, I would say, Italian Catholic with a passion for, for the gospel and the scripture in general. Um, I mean, I took, uh, you know, some classes back uh, in the day when I was in college. But I remember very clearly, and I use this passage quite often, you know, when I debate with uh, support of Christian Zionism, Matthew 24, 36. 
uh, if I remember well, says something like, but about that day or hour, no one knows about you know the, the coming again of, of Jesus, not even the angels in heaven. And I think this is the most important thing, nor the son, but only the father. And I always had this you know, sort of form of criticism, say, how can you actually foster something that in the scripture says that only the father knows? But again, this is my sort of way of responding. Um, and so I was wondering, how do people respond to Christian Zionism in general? So the way uh, Palestinian theology at least responds to to Christian Zionism is it challenges um, this idea of two covenants sort of running at the same time, right? Christian Zionists would say there's a covenant for Christians who are not Jewish, and there's a covenant for Jews uh, just on the basis of either their ethnicity or or the religion they practice, which is another question that I think Christian Zionism struggles with. But anyways, that's the sort of two-covenant theology that Christian Zionists hold. So Palestinian Christians, and I think many Christians around the world, would challenge that and say, isn't Jesus uh, sort of the ultimate expression of God's love here on earth? Isn't he, right, the the, the way, the truth, and, 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 and the life only through him? right can uh, the world actually be redeemed so they would first of all challenge this idea of a two covenant or one covenant theology and they would also challenge the idea that a a people group um, have this sort of uh, extra uh, uniqueness uh, and privileges to a specific geographical land because oftentimes christian zionists will say well god promised uh, Abraham the land and, and the, the Jewish people and therefore it, it belongs to them a lot of people would question well what are the borders of this land are we just speaking about the current borders of of, of the, the state of Israel um, and the Palestinian territories or are we talking about more land are we talking uh, what about some of the land in Jordan or Egypt or Syria Lebanon or and some Christian Zionists would say all the way to Iraq right so um, this is something we would very much challenge and of course this uh, that's when it comes to the borders of the land but Palestinian Christians would also challenge this idea of God having a, a favorite people or he would show any form of favoritism and um, therefore none of these uh, sort of notions hold and, and I think this is very much in line with a lot of and most of uh, Christians around the world um, and uh, historical theology as well. Do you think uh, Christian Zionism is a real threat to Palestinians? Not just Christian Palestinians, but in general to Palestine and Palestinians. Absolutely. I think Christian Zionists are not just a threat to Palestinians, whether they be Muslim or Christian, but actually a threat to Jews themselves. So it, it tends to be the most right-wing people for instance, I'll take the U.S. as an example, but it tends to be the most right-wing Trump supporters who hold anti-Semitic ideas who are also promoting Zionism. I mean, Lord Balfour himself was a Christian Zionist, and he also based his ideas not only on his theological understanding, but this idea that the Jews don't belong in in in, in Europe, and therefore they you know they they should leave. Um, so this idea of, of, of Christian Zionism and anti-Semitism actually running side by side is from, from the start of, of, of the Zionist movement amongst Christians. Then, of course, 
um, some some uh, uh, secular Jews take on uh, the, the the ideology of Zionism for different reasons. Um, but yeah, I think it's a huge threat because, uh, for instance, the the biggest uh, pro-Israel law, uh, organization in the U.S., Christians United for Israel, that has more than 10 million members, their leader literally is promoting different military uh, operations in different countries, right? Calling on the U.S. and Israel to attack different countries. So they're promoting, in many ways, conflict and war. And I think that is a big danger for all people living in this land. What I always found fascinating, again, because of the general ignorance uh, amongst Israeli about Christianity, is that on one hand, many would accept uh, uh, gifts, and you know, certainly, you know, Christian Zionist donors are very uh, generous in terms of the money they send to Israel, uh, well, particularly to certain groups, mostly settlers. Uh, but they don't really at least to me, it doesn't seem they understand the danger behind it. It's like uh, they're really uh, playing with fire. Of course, and, you know, the average Christian Zionist has no idea what's happening here. Um, they, they get, you know, they hear preachings in the front of their church, and they, you know, ask for people to donate. They encourage them because they will be blessed, right? They will be blessed as, you know, I will bless those who bless you. So they, bless, you know, they, they'll give a, a bit of money, but they have no idea. In terms of the situation here, the fact that there's Christians here, and there's a great documentary that I think was, um, I think it was uh, released last year, uh, following sort of a Christian Zionist. Um, I, I can't remember the exact name of the documentary. I think it's "To Thy Kingdom Come" or something like that, and it kind of traces the, the money um, of many Christian Zionists and then they bring a Christian Zionist who meets Palestinian Christians. And it's a very interesting interaction. There's also a good um, free film that was made, I think, in the um, mid-2000s, which also follows the journey of an evangelical Christian Zionist um, to the land. And the movie's called With God on Our Side. Um, so it, again, I think the average person has no idea what's happening here. He's just, or she is just listening to their pastor um, and of course, it's tied to other ideologies and, and, and uh, I think, racist ideas as well. I want to turn page um, because I want to talk a little bit about your work as a facilitator in the uh, interreligious dialogue. And I was wondering, you know, what you've been doing and how does uh, interreligious dialogue work today in Palestine? Interreligious dialogue is an interesting field, specifically in light of the, the, the history of the, the movement and here in uh, Israel-Palestine. Because interreligious dialogue, at least the movement itself, has been focusing on Christian-Jewish dialogue. And it's very much a theoretical discussion. So when you say to people interreligious dialogue, oftentimes the, the first thing that will come to their head is, you know, people, men of the cloth, Right, the religious leaders coming together, shaking hands, praying together, or or whatnot, and it also tends to be very theological and abstract. So I'm more interested in decolonizing interreligious dialogue and looking at interreligious dialogue in different ways in a much more indigenous uh, form, at least here in Palestine, and and I'm hoping to actually do my PhD on this topic specifically, um, but also talk about 
real challenges that the communities face, not necessarily abstract theological discussions, but, you know, as Muslim, Jews, Christians, Palestinian, Israelis, whatever identity we hold to, whether you be also atheist or a very religious committed person, but how can we ensure um, that all people live in freedom and, and injustice and equality here and dialogue at least being one uh, method to get there. And I always emphasize that any interreligious dialogue that doesn't challenge the status quo is participating in people's oppression. Uh, so this is sort of a key, I think, measure that at least me and some uh, some other of my colleagues uh, hold. I want to uh, move for the last part of the interview to talk about uh, this new enterprise uh, we, we just mentioned earlier, uh, this new journal, uh, the Journal of Palestinian Christianity. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about, uh, you know, what's the goal uh, and how did this new journal uh, come about? So for the past year and a half or two years, I've been trying to push this this journal forward uh, at the Bethlehem Bible College. And the reason why I, I was pushing for this is because many of us Palestinian Christian thinkers or Palestinians in general, it doesn't, it's not just Christians, but we'll often try and publish our work in different journals that are, you know, usually, uh, you know, the people who uh, own it or, or edit it tend to be in the West and are not always very happy with the content that we are researching or writing. And our papers, our papers are often uh, rejected quite frequently. So I wanted to create a journal for, uh, that focuses on Palestinian Christianity that is led by Palestinian Christians themselves, not waiting for any journal in, in Europe or the US or wherever to accept our work, but for us to decide what work uh, is published or not. And of course, it's a peer-reviewed journal. And on our advisory board, we have both Palestinians and internationals who specialize either in Palestine um, or in theology, interreligious uh, dialogue, religious studies, so on and so forth. So it's a very diverse group of people who are advising this journal. And I think it's the, it's uh, one of its kind. I don't think that there's another journal that is led by uh, Palestinians, uh, Christians, and f about Palestinian Christianity. And what's unique about this journal is that you can write either in Arabic or English. So I wanted to make it accessible for those who don't speak English um, and also for articles to be translated to Arabic. So to increase sources in Arabic. So whatever language you write in, we will translate it to the other. And uh, we're going to have our first issue, which is a general issue. It can relate to anything when it comes to Palestinian Christianity, which should, uh, first issue should be published in August. And then we have a second issue that will be published around February uh, 2024, that Dr. Sarah, Sarah Irving is uh, the editor of that journal and focusing on the relationship of Palestinian Christians and empires. I'm curious about uh, the topics that you think uh, may be covered by, by the journal, because obviously when you talk about Palestinian Christianity, uh, sounds uh, on one hand very broad, and on the other hand uh, maybe narrow. So I was just wondering if you can just give us a sense, uh, and perhaps there may be scholars listening and they're thinking about their work and potentially submitting uh, an article uh, to a journal. Yeah, that, that's a great question. 
I mean, it, Palestinian Christians don't have to be the main focus of many of these articles. So there's many scholars who have contacted me who have said, listen, John, I have written uh, and researched Palestine in general, but there's also a lot of things to do with Christians and Christianity. And I say, if you can adapt a specific article to to make it a bit more of the uh, sort of spotlight and the focus, then we would accept the article. So I've had submissions so far uh, looking at poetry by Palestinian Christians. Um, I've had submissions that look at uh, sumud as a religious concept between Muslims and Christians, different interpretations of sumud from a theological perspective. I've had people challenge Christian Zionism, uh, articles that have been uh, submitted. I've had submissions that focus on identity, right, and, and, and social psychology when it comes to Palestinian Christian identity. So it's very broad in, in the sense of the, the, the fields and disciplines that one can tackle the topic of Palestinian Christianity or Christians. Um, so it can be something theological. It can be something that has to do with law, politics. We're hoping to have a special issue at some point about art as well. So it's, it's, it's a very broad um, field. And of course, we'll have special issues that focus on very narrow topics, like the one that uh, Sarah Irving is uh, editing. As we reach the end of the interview, I have a, like, a couple more questions and may sound random, but they're very connected to what we discussed previously. And the first one is, uh, looking at uh, Palestine today and Palestinian Christians, what do you think are the major challenges that Palestinian Christians in Jerusalem and throughout Palestine are facing today? Many Palestinian Christians um, are leaving, especially young Palestinian Christians are leaving the land or at least seeking to, to, leave, to leave the land or, or thinking, beginning to think about this. And the main reasons for that is the lack of jobs and opportunities and, of course, the conflict. So um, many Palestinian Christians who live under military occupation uh, don't see any hope. Uh, they, they prefer to be able to move from city to city freely and, and find a decent job and not be harassed by uh, Israeli soldiers and therefore they're seeking uh, to leave. And this is a huge issue that we're facing. Also now with the new Israeli government that is going to be even more right-wing than previous governments, things are going to get very difficult and um, it's going to impact not just the Palestinian Christian community, but of course also uh, the Palestinian Muslim and indeed Israelis uh, that live here. So these are big uh, issues that uh, the average Palestinian is facing. And um, I think we also have an issue of identity, specifically those uh, those living in within the state of Israel often are not as connected to their Palestinian identity. Um, and those living in the West Bank and Gaza can sometimes connect more to uh, almost a Western form of, of Christianity as opposed to their Palestinian Christian identity. So there's many issues that we're, we're facing, but I think uh, the occupation and, and, and the new government is going to be a much it's going to be a, a very difficult um, phase for us. And on a different note, uh, we start uh, talking about, uh, at the very beginning of the interview, about, you know, holy places and uh, uh, particularly in Jerusalem location. So I was just wondering, do you have a favorite one and why would that be? Yeah, I'm going to be biased here and, and, and put both the Church of Resurrection and the Church of St. George in Adelaide as my favorite places. It's simply because of my connection 
to them. Um, I, I really uh, connect to the figure of St. George, who is a Palestinian saint, um, who um, all, in, I know in uh, iconography he's depicted as sort of victorious, killing the, um, the serpent or the dragon, but this is a play on his actual martyrdom, which was horrible and horrendous. So this sort of defeat um, by... Uh, by the Roman Empire, but its ultimate victory through um, his perseverance, um, which I connect to. We also live under, uh, you could call it, you can call it an empire or settler colonial uh, uh, context here, uh, where we too could be martyred for our identity. Uh, This is, I don't think, as far-fetched as many would think. And then when it comes to the Church of Resurrection, I very much uh, connect to this idea of ultimate success through failure, right? The death of the cross, Jesus failing, dying on a cross, but then uh, God, the Holy Spirit, using that defeat for ultimate success and victory. So this it gives me hope, at least as as someone who, um, you know, holds uh, the the Christian faith, uh, specifically when things are going to get more and more difficult in our context. One last question. Is there anything that we didn't discuss, but you think it's important that the listener would uh, hear from you, either about theology or Christianity in Palestine and Palestinian Christianity? Yes, I think there's more of a more of a need to study uh, some of the earlier expressions of Palestinian Christian uh, thought and practice, uh, specifically in relation to the Muslim and Jewish population before the British mandate. So to look at some of the indigenous practices between these communities uh, and then see what has changed and why has it changed uh, since then. And then I would, of course, encourage anyone who uh, hasn't been to Jerusalem uh, to come and visit and to meet uh, not only Palestinian Christians, but Palestinian Muslims and Israelis and to try and listen to as many stories uh, as possible. Um, yeah, I think that, that, that would be it. This was uh, John Munayer. John is a researcher, writer, theologian, interreligious uh, facilitator, and also editor and coordinator of a new journal on Palestinian Christianity that will be published in the coming months. John, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.